Thanks for tuning in to Link Up 360 podcast. I'm Caroline Emmett from Company Matters, Link Group's company secretarial team. In this episode, you're going to hear a recording from a recent webcast about the year ahead. Now, when you tuned in, you may have expected to hear Jay Baker, our head of industry and regular host of this podcast. Well, don't worry. Jay joined me on the panel for this event, and you'll get to hear what each of us had to say shortly. This event was part of our AHEAD programme for corporate governance professionals. So if you'd like to find out how to get involved in future events, you can sign up using the link in the description. I'm now going to hand you over to Tracy Brady, Managing Director of Company Matters, who kicked off our session. I hope you enjoy it as much as we did. Good morning and welcome to AHEAD, our latest event in our programme for governance professionals. My name is Tracy Brady and I'm the MD of Company Matters at Link Group. Today we're going to be covering some subjects that are relevant to governance professionals, we hope, uh, looking at a range of topics, um, hoping to, to stimulate some conversation and get the intellectual juices going this morning, but some subjects that will be relevant, we think. So um, we'll start off with Jay Baker, who's our industry expert at Link Market Services, and then we'll be followed by Caroline Emmett. Now I'm going to hand over to Jay. So Jay will be talking this morning on Brexit impacts, COVID impact in AGMs, and dematerialisation and intermediation. Over to you, Jay. Well, thank you for that, Tracy, and welcome everybody to this uh, AHEAD event. Um, as Tracy mentioned, uh, I'd, I would like to uh, briefly talk to you about some of the Brexit impacts that uh, uh, that we that we may see here at Link Group in terms of our delivery. Um, what some of those COVID impacts might be uh, in the future around the AGM season specifically, and I'll, I'll, I'll touch on some of that in just a moment. Uh, and DMAT and intermediation, that, that uh, age-old one of DMAT and what intermediation means for the future. And we might see some outcomes uh, later this year on that, so I'll, I'll, uh, I'll quickly run through those. In today's world, um, Brexit has naturally had an impact, uh, given it uh, happened just over a week ago in terms of uh, our, our final transitional period coming to an end on day 1st December at 11pm. Um, but strictly speaking, there haven't really been any impacts to our industry, except within our regulated products. And when I talk about regulated products, and I've highlighted them here, I really mean our share dealing and dividend reinvestment plans in particular. Uh, and the impact really is to do with how we communicate and market those products outside of the UK into the wider field, into the what remains the EU27. Um, and the simple answer to that is we can't. Um, the ability that we had uh, pre-Brexit uh, with our passporting rights meant that we were able to market our products in the same way uh, to EU as we could to our UK shareholders. Uh, unfortunately, that's now that's now uh, beyond us. So we can't market in the same way. What we can do, though, is continue to offer these services uh, in the background. Uh, and, and that's not to say that that's hiding the services at all. It just means that we are making the services available for the shareholders 
to use themselves without promotion from us as the provider or from the, the company necessarily, the issuer, uh, as the issuing company. Um, so how does that work and what is that journey for the shareholders? Well, quite simply, uh, in, in previous years and, and uh, pre, uh, pre-determination of the, the uh, uh, our, our withdrawal, um, companies were able to uh, promote these services on their dividend stationery within uh, their reporting accounts and, and other literature that, that was sent to shareholders. Um, whilst you would be able to continue to do that for UK shareholders, sadly, you're not able to do that for, for the European shareholders in the same way as you were never able to do that for US shareholders, Japanese, Australian and the like. So it's using those, those same rules, if you like, um, to, to make sure that the, the services are not promoted outside of their relevant jurisdiction. Now, shareholders in the EU are still able to to come to the websites within the portals um, and find those services that are available. Uh, So we will instead, uh, within literature, be telling shareholders if if you would like to make some choices or or come and view your choices that are available to you, I think would be the correct way of saying it. Um, Shareholders can then come and view whatever choices are made are available to them. Now, some of those choices might not be available to them uh, because the product isn't available, and others might be. Um, so it's then for therefore for the for the shareholders to determine whether they are one eligible uh, and, and whether they can participate. And by so doing, they will um, they will attest to the fact that um, by accessing that product or electing for that product, they have. Um, uh, done so freely, they have made their choice to do that, uh, and they haven't been promoted to. So that's the reverse solicitation process that's going to be used moving forward. So those products are very much available and will continue to be. Um, but what impacts have already been seen? Uh, and and this this moves nicely on to well, that question of dematerialization that you know I'm going to be mentioning in a moment. Um, there has been an impact on DMAT. Uh, because of Brexit. Um, But the biggest, without question, the biggest uh, impact that we've seen in our industry is the uh, change of the Central Securities Depository in Ireland. Uh, As many of you will know, uh, Ireland uh, continue, as as it is today, to use the Crest system to to settle their equity securities in the same way uh, we do in the UK. Now, Crest are not able because of Brexit, to continue offering those services into Ireland. So Ireland has embarked on a journey uh, to employ a, a new CSD product, a whole new infrastructure for the way shares are held. Uh, and that's going to be managed by you Clear Bank. So over the last 18 months, two years or so, we've worked closely with our uh, market peers, with industry and and with Euclid Bank in developing the process and procedure to bring that new CSD infrastructure into place. That comes live, that becomes live in mid-March this year. Uh, and uh, following which there'll be no more Crest in the UK. The way that Crest holders are currently managed will, will be completely separate. Uh, and there'll be a whole new holding model. So for our UK uh, issuers, there is no change. For our Irish clients, there certainly will be a change, and and they are very much aware of that. Uh, And moving forward, uh, we will will see some some 
hopefully some development of new service and delivery products uh, for the Irish market. Uh, let's move quickly on to COVID impacts and, and what next for AGMs. I really wanted to talk about uh, what what the AGM impacts are going to be, given we've just lived that uh, through through twenty through twenty twenty from March onwards, uh, in what was an extraordinary period uh, for AGM processing. Uh, for companies and registrars alike, and for shareholders, um, lots of closed door meetings. Um, so, what are we expecting? Well, we are expecting, I think, a possible change in legislation. We know that the Corporate Insolvency and Governance Act of 2020 has been extended until the 30th of March 2021, and not the 31st of March 2021, as as has been reported um, in some camps. Now. We do know that the government cannot extend that any further under current rules. So if there is going to be a change in legislation to allow for companies to hold hybrids without any change of articles, then there's there's going to need to be a change in, in fairly short order. And I'm not sure whether UK government is minded or has got the time to be able to, to make those changes available. We'll have to wait and see on that. Um, you know, should 2021, therefore, be the year that, that companies future-proof their articles and not just the future-proof in terms of being able to hold hybrid or virtual or other types of digital meetings, but perhaps uh, including other other challenges that, that may come up in the future, whether it's regarding payments, and removal of checks, or, and other removal of paper um, uh, processing. So there's, there's, there's lots to be looked at in terms of what companies can do in the, in the immediate uh, term, which will be closed door meetings can still happen up until the 30th of March. What happens beyond then, I think we're, we're still a little in the dark on. And I've, I've, my first point here is, you know, is, is hybrid the future? Uh, and that is a massively important question. I'd love to hear from companies uh, what their views are on, on this in terms of, of hybrid meetings, you know, what your plans are, and, and, I'm, and I'm open to any conversations on that. I mean, from a link perspective, we are delivering on all of those meeting types, whether they are a hybrid or virtual or closed door meetings or uh, webinar type meetings, Zoom even, um, we can help you with, 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 with your requirements there. Um, I think importantly, I've, I've asked the question here about what the shareholders want. So it, it's very important what clients and companies and issuers can do, uh, but it's important to service the needs of the shareholders, obviously. Um, and we know from our recent um, uh, survey of of uh, the uh, retail shareholder base, in, in association, it has to be said, with the UK Shareholders Association, that 81% of retail shareholders are in favour of hybrid meetings. And, and that's um, that's far greater than we had anticipated. Uh, we, we didn't anticipate that response at all. Um, the 89, the, there's, there's the, dif- the difference between that 81% is that 89% of retail holders are against fully virtual meetings. And, and I think we expected that. We expected shareholders to be against the virtual and more in favour of hybrid, but I wasn't expecting that level of um, support for hybrid meetings. So it's clear that that, that shareholders 
are interested in hybrid and the use of digital for the future. And we've seen that from, from the institutional shareholder base, the, the stewards of the companies uh, and, and what they are looking for in terms of the good corporate governance, the governance aspects of the ESG considerations, all of those buzzwords that you hear, that the, the, the institutional holders are becoming more and more aware of what their duties are, are and what they should be delivering into um, issues in terms of requirements for the future. So it's certainly something that, that companies will need to think about moving forward. Um, we've done some research as well on uh, proxy appointments and, uh, and there has been a change in the way proxy appointments has happened. So in 2019, the average amount of share capital that was voted for AGMs or GMs, and this is a collective, uh, was about 50.1% of capital voted. In 2020, we've seen that rise to 63.9%, or if we take 64% of share capital is now voted at every meeting, some high, some low, of course, but that's the average, which is, I think, fantastic, given the, the difficulties we've just overcome uh, in 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 the pandemic, proxy volume by uh, proxy volume by by digital channels has also seen a huge increase uh, uh, compared to 2019. So in 2019 itself, 39% of all proxies that were submitted, all those proxy points that were lodged, were via digital means. That's Crest, Web, and, and any other channels. In 2020, we saw that increase massively to 53%. The first time we've ever seen the digital overtake the paper. Uh, and I think that's quite telling. Um, shareholders are becoming much more attuned to how they can deliver uh, and engage with their issuer companies. Uh, and, and that's the perfect example of, of, of that working, that the messaging on the future of proxy voting delivered electronically is now coming to bear. Uh, and, and it's the, and it's the, choice, the method of choice for, for, for shareholders moving forward. So we're seeing a strong change in the way proxy appointments are made uh, and how they are delivered uh, and the voice of the shareholder. Even the retail shareholder is now being heard in how they want to see the AGM move forward and develop into more of an interactive event for them and for, for the companies alike. So I think a lot of companies uh, who, who haven't made changes to their articles already will need to think about perhaps what they should be doing this year, not being able to rely on government intervention uh, and rule changes. We simply don't know what's going to happen post 30th of March, whether, whether there will be any legislative change. I would like to think there will be, um, but it's not in, in Link's gift. It's not in our gift to to be able to, to influence, although I, I'm, I'm fairly certain that some of the bodies in the UK are, are making those representations. So I think 2021 is going to be an important year in the development of the AGM, and, and it's moving at a very fast rate, uh, and all those deliverables are now coming to bear, whether it's voting via apps or voting via websites or, or, or attending virtually or digitally, um, and a lot more of that's to come. Uh, let's move on to DMAT and intermediation. Now, DMAT, as I said, there has been an impact post-Brexit uh, on DMAT. 
Now, you, you may or may not know that the original timeline was uh, 2023 for any new security coming to market would need to be in a dematerialised uh, form from the 1st of January 2023. Uh, and existing securities, those current listed securities, uh, would need to be in a fully dematic position by from the 1st of January 2025. Now, since uh, Brexit has happened uh, and, our, and our exit from the EU uh, means these conditions contained within the CSDRs, the Central Securities Depository Regulations, uh, have not been implemented. Uh, so what does this mean for the UK? Well, we don't quite know yet. Um, we are here talking about dematerialisation in the same way we were back as long ago as 1990. Uh, 1996 brought us quite heavily into a dematerialised uh, arena. 75%, 80% of shares are dematerialised in, in Crest anyway. Um, at the same time, in 96, Australia, uh, for example, uh, went fully dematerialised. Here we are in 2021 still talking about dematerialisation, uh, and the, the very same country, Australia, are looking at blockchain as a solution for, for their settlement system. So I think there's some way to go for, for the UK. Uh, in Ireland, I've already mentioned, the CSD, the, the, the new central securities depository there, operated by Euclid Bank, um, means that they will be looking to, to have a fully dematerialised system in place for the 1st of January 2023. Now, for us as uh, Link, uh, that means we're, we're going to need to spin up a new project. Uh, that needs to be established very soon because we've got the new CSD being born on uh, the weekend of the 12th of March this year. Uh, and from the immediate start of that process, we need to now plan for, for dematerialisation from Ireland. So there is this divergence now, post-Brexit, of the UK continuing on its current stream and Ireland going off into the future. Uh, and I think the UK government are aware of that, uh, which has prompted a review of intermediation. Uh, and shareholder rights generally. So, we we've had this 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 uh, this study of intermediation by the Lord Commission, uh, findings of which we 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 await, um, and that's largely been brought about by, as I say, where we are on DMAT, what intermediation is, and that's the the holders behind those levels and layers of nominee positions in registers. And what SRD2 has delivered. So SRD2 came uh, into uh, being in September uh, this year, or actually in 2020, um, with very little impact, actually, for the UK, um, meaning did it achieve what it was meant to achieve? Uh, and, I, and I suspect that's not the case. I, I suspect that SRD2 hasn't achieved what it was, what it intended to do, was to deliver shareholder rights to investors behind nominee positions, which I think ultimately was, was what was the aim. And of course, I would argue that those people behind the nominees are of course not shareholders, they're investors, they're beneficial holders. Um, so, you know, SRD2 has delivered on its shareholder uh, position, but not for the investor. Uh, and within intermediation, uh, the rights are not carried forward quite as much as they should be. Uh, and I think that largely depends on the supply or the provider uh, of the nominee service. So the commission, the law commission has looked at that and how best that they can 
they can either bring about dematerialization for all or how to restructure that intermediated model to be able to to bring more rights to shareholders uh, all very plausible and and, and uh, you know great ideas but we'll have to wait and see uh, what happens in the uk when we hear a bit more from the law commission on that um and i just I, I, although it's not on here before i'd mention it so on saturday the 9th of january so just a couple of days ago um the uh, uk government published its response to the consultation uh, on the expansion of the dormant asset scheme um, that's important because uh, the expansion will also encompass the uh, the issuer agents or rather the issuer companies and uh, what dormant assets may may be lying around, i.e. gone away shareholders, lost shareholders. Um, now, it's, I say it's important because there will be, although it will remain a, um, uh, it's, 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 uh, a, a system in which you can choose to, to use or not, there will be pressure coming from, I think, investors, again, using the ESG label to say to companies, you should be looking uh, at the best way you can reunify assets with lost shareholders or else use those assets for good causes. Um, I think we're a couple of, way, a couple of years away from um, that expansion, probably into our industry. There's some, some work that needs to be done by industry generally. Um, but in the meantime, Link, and I know some of the other participants in the market are looking at ways to support companies in promoting the reunification and track, track and trace, uh, dare I say, of lost shareholders and gone away. So there's going to be more more reported on that over the coming days and weeks. So one to look out for. And one, perhaps, when I go back to that question on future-proofing uh, articles, perhaps there as well, something to think about um, in terms of your dormancy requirements and, and what you're going to do about lost shareholders in the future. So I think that brings me nicely to the end of my presentation. Um, I'm going to hand over to Tracy and I thank you all for listening. And if you need any further information, there will be details at the end. Many thanks. Thank you, Jay. Thanks. That was great. So we'll move on now to Caroline. And Caroline has been looking in more detail at what's going to affect boards in this coming year. So I'm going to hand over to Caroline, where she looks at the board level oversight of mainly ESG matters. So Caroline. Thank you very much, Tracy. And thanks, Jay. There's um, certainly plenty of food for thought uh, in relation to the next preparations for the next um, AGM season there um, that we all need to be mindful of going forward. So um, bringing us more to um, the climate and ESG oversight by the board, it's very difficult not to be aware of the growing focus on this topic um, and particularly disclosures um, about climate related financial matters. So this was always going to be in what I thought would be um, the top three issues to focus during 2021. But when I started looking at the wider implications, I ended up with focusing just on the board levels oversight of climate and other ESG matters. So first, I'm going to talk about some of the key drivers for this and then go on to outline some practical considerations and suggestions for basic governance sense checks. 
um, actions for each of the remuneration, nomination and audit committees, and also for directors themselves, bearing in mind that company secretaries will be acting as the voice of conscience for all parties involved. I haven't carved out separate actions for them, but clearly they are a linchpin to all of this. So firstly, um, let's take a look at where the momentum is coming from and where it might lead. So most immediately, as part of the government's green finance agenda announced in 2019, in November last year, the Chancellor announced plans to introduce mandatory disclosures aligned with the recommendations of the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures across the economy by 2025, with most requirements coming into force by 2023. As a reminder, TCFD encompasses 11 reporting recommendations grouped under four themes, governance, strategy, risk management, and metrics and targets. And together, they require organizations to clearly set out how they have embedded consideration of climate change into the boards and management's roles and responsibilities, and into the organization's overall strategy and systems. The Finance Conduct Authority was already working on new reporting requirements for commercial companies with a premium listing on the London Stock Exchange and published the final requirements in December 2020. So for financial years starting on or after the 1st of January 2021, those companies will be required to confirm in their annual report whether it includes climate-related financial disclosures consistent with the TCFD recommendations, and if not, whether they have been included in any other document, together with reasons why and where this document can be found, or they will have to explain why they have not made such disclosures. A few points that are worth noting. The new rule operates on a comply or explain basis. But while the FCA understands that some companies may need more time to address the transitional challenges involved, it generally expects companies to be able to comply with the requirement from the start. And the FCA will consider during 2021 whether to move from comply or explain to mandatory disclosure. Furthermore, the FCA notes that climate-related risks and opportunities are widely understood to be materially, uh, financially material to many issuers' assets, and the same may apply to other ESG-related risks and opportunities. And it's therefore reminding companies that they already have the need to consider these sorts of disclosures under existing listing rule and disclosure and transparency guidance and rules. For the time being, the new reporting requirements will not apply to investment companies or to standard segment companies or AIM companies, but we should expect to see consultations during the first half of 2021 on bringing similar disclosure obligations for asset managers, investment companies, life insurance and pension providers over a three-year period from 2022 to 2025, and widening the scope to include other listed commercial companies and large private companies by 2022. So the first annual reports required to comply with the new reporting requirements, being for commercial premium listed companies, won't be due until the spring of 2022. But in the meantime, 
Climate-related reporting will be a key area of focus for the Financial Reporting Council during 2021. The regulator's thematic review of climate change reporting, which it published in November 2020, highlights some examples of better practice, but the overall message is that more still needs to be done. An increasing number of companies provide narrative reporting on climate-related issues, but it's often unclear how consideration of climate-related issues informs key decisions, the business model or the company's strategy. In addition, there's often a lag or even a disconnect between the narrative reporting disclosures on climate change in the front section of the annual report and consideration and disclosure of such matters in the financial statements and accompanying notes. And the FRC has identified areas of potential non-compliance with accounting standards, for example, in relation to impairments. So while the minimum legal requirements are generally being met, users and in particularly investors also require additional disclosures to inform their decision making. And the FRC is encouraging companies to voluntarily report against TCFD this year and also against the standard metrics that have been developed by the sustainability accounting standards for a variety of sectors and industries. The FRC is also uh, encouraging, I'm not sure is a strong enough word for it, um, but asking companies to make sure that material, um, that where um, the impact of climate change risks and uncertainties are material, that these are clearly flagged in the narrative reporting and are properly considered and reflected in the financial statements and notes. A third area of pressure is from investors um, for, who have been um, clamoring for improved climate-related financial disclosures for some time, reflecting new statutory or semi-voluntary disclosure requirements for pension funds and asset managers. However, one of the latest initiatives goes one step beyond that. The Institutional Investors Group on Climate Change, which represents over $9 trillion of assets under management or advice and includes some of the largest uh, UK asset managers, published a paper in November 2020 and a letter to 36 of uh, Europe's largest companies setting out investors' expectations for directors to deliver accounts that are fully aligned with the Paris Agreement to support the proper deployment of investors' capitals. So what they're asking for is for financial statements that properly reflect the impact of getting to net zero emissions by 2050. Some of the companies most exposed to climate factors, such as BP and Shell, have already started to do so, lowering their long-term commodity price assumptions to a level that's better aligned with Paris. And their auditors are also making clear the importance of climate risks in their key audit matters. The IIGCC are also demanding that auditors provide reassurance that accounts incorporate material climate risks and make clear whether they can be considered to be Paris aligned. The paper describes the tools that investors can use to hold boards and auditors to account, such as engagement, and then a series of escalating points, voting against the audit committee chair, against all members of the audit committee, 
against the chair of the board, against the reappointment of the auditor and approval of their remuneration. The focus at the moment is on the largest producers of emissions and consumers of energy, uh, and rightly so. But boards need to be prepared for the focus to start dropping down the list, down to other companies um, beyond the largest polluters. So um, my last uh, key driver I wanted to mention was um, we may possibly during the course of this year begin to see some progress on the audit reforms proposed by the Kingman and the Bryden reviews um, and therefore face the prospect of enhanced viability and risk disclosures in the form of the Bryden Review's resilience statement, which asks companies to incorporate a going concern opinion for the short term, a statement of resilience for the medium term, and consideration of the risks to resilience in the long term. So having looked at some of the key drivers, let's move on to the next slide and see what this starts to mean for us. Let's look at how prepared our boards, committees, individual directors and company secretaries are in terms of dealing with all these climate related demands and requirements. I'll start off by acknowledging that all sectors and the companies within them are impacted differently and will need to structure their approach to best suit their particular circumstances. So please take any suggestions that follow in that context and adapt them to your purposes. Also, speaking openly, I feel like I'm still on a bit of the steep bit of the learning curve on climate-related matters. And if the same applies to you, then the indications for from a couple of reports are that we are by no means alone. A report co-authored by Eversheds together with KPMG and published in October 2020 looked at how the corporate world was responding to climate change. And based on interviews with directors and C-suite executives from over 500 of the world's leading companies, 87% of executives believe they understand the climate-related risks that their companies face. But 74% of all respondents believed that their board and management needed some or considerable improvement in their skills to deal with risks of climate change. Then we have the 2020 Sustainability Board report, which analyzed the boards of one, the 100 largest public companies drawn from the Fortune 2000 across 19 countries. And that data shows that 63 of the companies had a board sustainability committee, which was an increase of 17% compared to the previous year. And the number of directors on sustainability committees had increased a little faster by 19%, giving still an average of four directors per committee. However, only 17% of the directors, 48 out of 275, had explicit sustainability credentials or experience mentioned in the biography, compared to 15% last year. Now, this is concerning because it reflects at best poor disclosure of the director's credentials and skills, and at worst, a lack of specific sustainability knowledge at board level and limited urgency in terms of changing this. Now, perhaps this isn't surprising because many boards are still getting up to speed on climate change, 
But it's hard to imagine a company having an audit committee where only 17% of the members met the experience requirements set out by the listing rules or the corporate governance code for that committee. Let's come back to that a little later, as I think first it's worth boards and cosecs doing a bit of sense checking on some of the basic governance requirements. Questions that we should all be asking ourselves. Do we have a specific committee with the capacity, interest and skills to take on the lead of overseeing climate related matters and perhaps ESG more broadly? Or should the full board take responsibility? Or should we be creating a new committee? Is it time, for example, to create a separate risk committee or an ESG committee? Separate risk committees have been mandatory for certain banks and investments firms for some time now, but remain optional for other companies. And only 22% of the FTSE 350 companies have one. Apart from financial and insurance groups, they're most likely to be found in construction and industrial companies, as well as real estate, travel and leisure, aerospace and defense, media, support services, pharma and utility companies in ever declining proportions. And fewer than one in 10 companies in other sectors have a separate board level risk committee. It really is a case of horses for courses. For some, the nature of the risks involved are such that they can comfortably be considered by the audit committee. In other cases, depending on the size of the board, the independent NEDs with the appropriate knowledge and experience will all be sitting on the audit committee anyway. So constituting a separate group doesn't make sense from a practical perspective. Similar considerations apply to the creation of standalone ESG committees. And it is worth remembering that all directors have a duty to consider ESG matters under one, Section 172 of the Companies Act. So it's not a question of just parking these responsibilities in a committee. Do the committee terms of reference need to be updated to clarify the allocation of responsibility for climate or ESG oversight? Are they sufficiently clear? And how will the separate committees stay aligned? Because ESG matters and to some extent climate change do span all of the code committees. Do the agendas for the board uh, and relevant committees planned for this year allocate sufficient time to these matters, particularly for companies that are facing the introduction of mandatory uh, or comply or explain uh, TCFD requirements. There is no right or wrong way of approaching this. It really does depend on the company, the sector it operates, and um, investor and other stakeholders' expectations for that sector. Sectors that are more exposed to climate risk are more advanced than others. But to some extent, even best-in-class companies are still evolving their approach. And the important thing, ultimately, is to set out clearly where the responsibilities lie at present. But it is worth noting that in 2021, Glass-Lewis's proxy advisory reports for FTSE 100 companies will flag as a concern if the annual report does not include clear disclosure of board-level oversight on ESG matters. And in 2022, it will generally recommend voting against the chair of a board who failed to provide these disclosures. And no doubt the level of scrutiny will drop over time. So 
Let's turn to look at each of the code committees in turn, because they all have their work cut out for them too. The nomination committee should be considering whether climate-related risks and opportunity are of a sufficient materiality to the business to see whether they should be included in the director's skills matrix. And if your nomination committee doesn't have a skills matrix, a board-level skills matrix, you should be thinking about whether it should design one appropriate for the company and start using it to track the board and committee's competence in key areas, identify any gaps, and help with succession planning. Because, board, uh, because proxy voting agencies have started to do this, and it's embarrassing and frustrating if they were to identify a gap that you haven't or that isn't there, but there's no public information to confirm that. So directors and co-secs need to make sure that any relevant skills and the contributions um, that, what, that directors can make are visible and explicit in their biographies and in discussions on the board's overall composition, skill and experience. If you haven't come across it already, it's worth looking at Glass-Lewis's paper on their approach to board skills, which they published in January last year, setting out the score skills that they will look for in different types of sectors. And some of the larger Australian companies um, are also worth looking at. They have been doing this for five years or so in response to um, an Australian stock exchange requirement uh, and provide some useful precedents. Next. If there is a gap in the board's or committee's climate competence, board chairs and the NOMCO need to think hard about how to address it, assuming it is a material issue for the company. What does climate competence mean? To me, it means a level of understanding of climate risk and opportunities that allows directors to participate in informed discussions on the subject, to work with management to embed climate matters into strategy and business as usual, and be able to challenge and, uh, and comment on management's approach and assumptions. So if the board's climate competency needs to be strengthened, what does this mean? Does it necessarily mean new recruitment? And if so, what depth of knowledge, skill and experience should be incorporated into the search profile? Does the board really need a subject matter expert? Or should all board members, or some in particular, be looking to increase their climate competency? And is there a case for organising training or occasional insight sessions with internal or external experts? Or, as some companies have been doing, for constituting an advisory committee with internal or external experts? Again, there's no prescribed way of approaching this. It needs to be company-specific. Um, and last but not least, NOMCOs should be thinking about building in climate competency into their longer term succession planning for NEDs and for board committees on the one hand, and for the executive committee and the pipeline leading up to them on the other, particularly if the board places reliance on a particular person or persons as the source of its climate competence. Next, moving on to the remuneration committee, most of them will have been looking at the possibility of incorporating ESG metrics into executive incentive schemes, but not many have introduced them yet. And where companies have, the trend has so far been to include them in the short-term incentive schemes, 
which does seem counterintuitive given ESG is all about the long term. But to some extent, this reflects the real practical difficulties in setting longer term, realistic and achievable targets on these matters, especially during the pandemic. Whilst many investors are increasingly open to or pushing for ESG-related metrics to be included in incentive frameworks, they are also wary of more complexity in what are already complex and opaque schemes. And any climate or ESG metrics introduced should be of a strategic nature rather than an operational nature and not work against our KPIs. One suggestion I heard last year by a member of the IIGCC was that if companies produced Paris-aligned accounts, as they have been calling for, an incentive scheme based on those accounts and more conventional financial metrics like return on equity or return on assets would be aligned with climate matters and provide the right incentives. This might be a step too far for most companies at present, but there's definitely more room for thought and discussion in this area by remuneration committees and their advisors. But perhaps most of the heavy lifting falls on the audit committee, especially if, as tends to be the case, most of the non-financial institutions they are also responsible for risk oversight and climate and reporting falls within their remit. Audit committee chairs need to be thinking about most immediately and for companies that are within the scope of the FCA's new listing rule, are they satisfied that the necessary arrangements are or will be put in place to make sure that the company is able to meet the new disclosure requirements on a timely basis, bearing in mind the FCA's expectations that most companies will report in compliance rather than explain why they haven't been able to comply. More broadly, do the audit committee's monitoring and review activities demonstrate that the company's risk management systems are effective in identifying and assessing material climate risks? Is the committee satisfied that there has been appropriate consideration of the resilience of the business to any potential threats? Have all material climate-related risks, opportunities, and strategic discussions been disclosed, and have they been adequately reflected in the asset and liability valuations? What scenarios have been developed? Are these aligned with Paris? And if not, is that appropriate, and why? Is the committee satisfied with the metrics and targets chosen to assess and manage climate-related risks and opportunities, and how have they been set? And is it satisfied with the level of assurance over climate-related data and analysis and with the integrity of the reporting on climate-related matters? Again, depending on how your governance arrangements work, these, may ma these matters might rest with another committee or the board, but the bottom line is someone needs to be asking these questions. And audit committee chairs need to be working with the nomination committee in terms of addressing training succession planning. The Audit Committee Chair's independent forum has produced a draft paper on the Audit Committee's role in understanding and addressing the impact of climate change, which I believe will be finalised shortly and is definitely worth looking out for. The interim paper is available on their website in the meantime. Last but not least, the owners shouldn't rest entirely with the chair with the nomination committee or the company secretary to come up with solutions to covering gaps in the board's competency in relation to climate-related matters.
directors need to make sure that they are upskilling themselves on this. And for that, I can recommend a network called Chapter Zero, which was created by NEDS specifically for that purpose. They were formed under the auspices of the World Economic Climate Governance Initiative and have a great range of toolkits, webinars, thought leadership content and peer-to-peer -peer sharing to help NEDS engage more fully in discussions on climate challenges for their companies. So in conclusion, to date, in many cases, climate change financial matters have not necessarily been high on the board agendas. Companies have generally been responding to requirements imposed from the outside in rather than proactively figuring out what they need to do. And their response has been to do the minimum required to comply. These requirements are growing and they're not going away because investors and regulators are convinced that there is substantial value at risk. And it's really hard for companies to report on things that they're not doing well or not doing at all. Hopefully, the suggestions I've made will help you make sure that you and your board are well placed to embrace the arrangements that you are required to take on and that you can meet investors and regulators' expectations, but get value out of them as well. And do feel free to get in touch if you would like me to send you the links to any of the publications I've mentioned. Thank you. Well, that concludes our discussion. So a lot of interesting points to contemplate for 2021. We're going to continue creating podcasts to discuss everything you need to know about trending topics in our industry. So if this is something you find useful, you might want to consider hitting subscribe on whatever platform you get your podcasts from. Bye for now.